Hello, and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Welcome back everyone. My name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host, Simon, who is a bit bruised and battered, but I yeah. think we'll make it through the podcast. Let's hope so. This ginger and, and what wine are we drinking? Ginger and honey wine. Ginger and honey wine's helping me. Cut a long story short, yesterday I was running to the station because I was late for a meeting and I tripped over and fell, I don't want to exaggerate, but fell pretty badly. And I'm bruised up, and I think I've broken my toe, and I'm battered. And I keep making those old man noises every time I move, but yeah. It comes to his own. Yeah, we should all get through this. <laughs> so, this week we are discussing the essay Funny, but not Vulgar, which was published in Leader magazine. Well, actually, it's got a couple of dates. It says December 1944. And July 1945. I think it was probably written in 1944 and then published in 1945. But anyway, Simon, uh, just initially, what did you make of this essay? I enjoyed it, but I, I don't know how entirely relevant it was to me at the time. There's a lot of, I think you're better read with, than I am with, with regards to fiction. So I think a lot of his references to various writers, you're going to be able to speak about that more than I am. And he complains about the, the humour at the time. And this is 1944, 1945. So what I did as I read it was convert it to how I'm thinking of contemporary humorists. And in that regard, I found it really interesting. And hopefully we can jump into that today and discuss like, both ears, I suppose. Yes, uh, Orwell concentrates a lot in this on humorous writing and literature. And I think that is a... A big difference between the time Orwell was writing in and our current times. But a lot of people up until, say, uh, 60, 70 years ago, consumed humour uh, through the written word, through magazine articles, through funny stories. Uh, and there were, you know, humorous magazines like uh, Punch that he mentions in this uh, essay. But... Um, these days, we mostly consume our humour, I think, either through TV, and especially streaming services these days, or podcasts. A lot of, there are a lot of uh, <laughs> funny podcasts. Not, not including ours <laughs> in, in, in that list. Uh, but back in when he wrote this, would, would there have been uh, satirical programmes on the radio? There would have certainly been comic programmes on the radio. It was a bumper time for comedy, wartime, uh, and a lot of satire about the, the situation, rationing, uh, all that kind of humour that our grandparents were familiar with. When were the goons? They were later? in the 50s, in so the they 50s, were coming okay. out of the war. And actually, uh, Spike Milligan and um, Harry Seacombe in fact, all of them were servicemen during yeah. the war. Uh, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe met actually fighting in Africa. Yeah. And their humour was very much, very different from the humour that was coming through official channels during the war because it was a bit more 
having you know been at the front i think their humor was a lot more nihilistic and um surreal and just affected by i mean in the goon show there were lots and lots of jokes about explosions and that was really spike milligan working through his trauma at you know being shell-shocked and, yeah. and having PTSD as a result of his experiences during the war. Was Peter Sellers in the Goons? He was, he was. What was his war record? Well, he was a lot younger than Milligan. Um, he was in the RAF and he was basically spent his war in India. Um, I don't know if he saw action. I think Spike Milligan certainly saw the most action out yeah. of any of them. Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe. Spike Milligan's War Diaries, his book about the war, was hilarious. And the, the funny bits are that just what they got up to in barracks and the bits in between the fighting, those long, boring stretches, is hilarious. Well, speaking of funny literature, I think that's something you and I can both relate to because I remember reading some of Spike Milligan's war diaries, especially um, Adolf Hitler, my part in his down... No, yes, my part my in part his down downfall. And Rommel, Gunner Who. Um, I remember reading them as a teenager and I was just sat there in bed crying with laughter late at night because I couldn't put the book down. Do you remember there's the brilliant story about how before they went to Africa and they were just uh, on manoeuvres in Britain and... Uh, Spike Milligan was a, I think he was, he, he was in the Royal Artillery and I think he was like a signaller or something like that. Uh, so he had a job that when you're on manoeuvres, it's quite easy to skive and, you know, there's no one watching you. So I remember the story about how him and his mates, uh, they were sort of hiding out in the woods in a pillbox and I think they managed to get some like contraband booze um, <laughs> and because there were no officers around. And I remember the story ended with them like running naked through the woods, uh, <laughs> screeching Viva la Joe Stalin and hitting uh, trees with sticks. And I remember that had me, that had me creased up. Yes, there's uh, a lot of stuff here about funny literature, which might not be easy for a lot of people to relate to today, but I'll, I'll maybe go into that a bit later. I think there's some, even these days, there's some funny Victorian literature that's worthwhile reading. And we can try and modernise it and talk about the themes of the essay with regards to contemporary comedians. Yes, and going, right, shows. going right into the themes, yep. um, Simon, what did you make of what we could basically call Orwell's theory of humour. Um, I'm quoting him here, page 781. A thing is funny when, in some way that is not actually offensive or frightening, it upsets the established order. Every joke is a tiny revolution. And just going on a bit later in the essay, um, he writes, humour uh, a joke is at most a temporary rebellion against virtue, and its aim is not to degrade the human being, but to remind him that he is already degraded. Humour is the debunking of humanity. I, I think we can relate this back to uh, what we were talking about in the Donald McGill essay, yeah. the idea of humour reminding us not to think ourselves too pure or too noble or too good. What, what did you make of the Orwellian theory of humour? I agree with him especially where he says, whatever destroys dignity and brings down the mighty from their seats. Like, gets you off your bloody perch, basically. 
that's exactly how I feel about humour, using it as a, as a tool of having a voice. Little old me, how important am I? Very, very unimportant. But through humour and satire, I can feel like I'm on a level playing field with those who are in power, those who have resources and money. And once, we're, once they are the butt of the joke, it's funny. It's not funny to take the piss out of somebody who's down on their luck. It's just not funny. Whereas it's, it's unfunny when a comedian is handsome or beautiful. You see what I'm saying there? Whereas because they don't, they can't laugh at themselves. Whereas laughing at somebody who is handsome or beautiful, calling them dumb and a bimbo, it, it's bringing them down, isn't it? Yes, I totally agree with him about that. So you would be very much of the opinion that, as they say, humour should always be punching up. I do. I should be bottom up mm. rather than top down. Because this has been a big debate in society, particularly British society, in, let's say, American society too, in the last 10, 15 years. Because we came out of the 90s, which was this period of, you know, postmodern irony, when, you know, the lad comics were making all these, you know, jokes that these days might be seen as kind of sexist or a bit racist or homophobic, but they could get away with it because at that time, irony was the thing. But these days, comics, we're starting to question comics making jokes and question the whole idea of irony because, you know, some people hide behind, or at least the idea is they hide behind the idea of irony um, yeah. and they actually say things which are as bad as, uh, you know, those old working men's comics in the 70s. Can I give you an example, actually? You know Jimmy Carr? Yeah. One of the most successful British comedians of the last 20 years. When Bernard Manning died, now for anyone who doesn't know who Bernard Manning is, he was a very successful comedian in the 70s, uh, came out of the working men's club circuit, but his humour was very sexist, racist, lots of jokes about ethnic minorities, um, about women, about the mother-in-law. When Bernard Manning died, of course, there were lots of trendy people uh, on in the media saying, oh, he represented this old style of comedy. Isn't it terrible? Haven't we moved on? And there was this famous incident where someone was being interviewed about Bernard Manning on the radio and the interviewer said to them, can I just read out some of Bernard Manning's jokes to you? And they said, okay. And so they were reading out these jokes and this guy was finding these Bernard Manning jokes very offensive. And he was saying, oh, well, this is typical of the old style of comedy. And isn't it good that we've moved on? And then the interviewer said, actually, these are jokes that Jimmy Carr told last week on a popular Channel 4 show. So it makes you wonder how far we've moved on. So th there's very much a debate these days about... Or about whether humour is very much contextualised. Bernard yes. Manning, a northern working-class man. Jimmy Carr, a southern middle-class university-educated man. So if he's saying these jokes, there must be some kind of... Intellectual intellectualism behind it. And some kind of satire, which you can only get if you're really clever. Whereas if Bernard Manning says exactly the same joke, it's just some 
uneducated, unwittingly unfunny northerner. And that's where class comes in. There you go. Right? I'm sure Orwell would have had something to say about yeah. that. I actually have to say, Simon, I'm a bit at odds with Orwell here in some of his ideas about humour. I think he's being a bit too... I think he's being a bit too political because this idea, this quote, every joke is a tiny revolution. I think that's the seminal quote from the essay, mm. isn't it? It's not. Revolutions change things. I would argue humour doesn't really change anything. Later he says a joke is a rebellion. I think that's much closer to the truth. But Because re rebellions don't necessarily change society. But revolutions are supposed to change things. And I don't actually think humour does cause political change. Did you ever hear that famous quote from Peter Cook about... Um, when he was setting up a club, the establishment club, for uh, the promotion of satire in the 1960s, they asked Peter Cook, you know, why have you set up this club? And Peter Cook said, I hope that my establishment club will be like those wonderful old Weimar cabarets in Berlin, which did so much to stop the rise of Hitler. <laughs> well, what about... The Otpor movement, like saw that came, saw about the downfall of Milosevic. I'm not familiar with they, that. It, they just used satire the entire time. It was they wanted a velvet revolution based on satire. Or um, and did that bring Milosevic down, or was it NATO? <laughs> let's say a combination of the two. Do you remember Sarah Palin? Yes. When she was John McCain's running mate. Sarah Palin, and, the thinking man's Donald Trump. Yeah, and. Tina Fey's humour, SNL Saturday Night Live and Tina Fey's portrayal of her almost single-handedly turned her into a, a, a figure of mockery and they lost all respect on that campaign. So there you go, that's another example. Or in Z Zimbabwe, they started to use humour against Mugabe and his regime to bring down Mugabe. Um, have you ever heard of a guy called Jan Kalina? Familiar. In, in the, so he was an intellectual in the Czech Republic. And in the 70s and 80s, he used comedy. He, he would write... So he was a professor at university in Prague, but he would write cabarets, radio shows, where he would mock the Soviet Union and the socialist government of the Czech Republic. And finally, in 1981, they exiled him to West Berlin because too many people were listening to his shows, which was... It was never directly mocking the Soviet Union, but in, in the same way, Animal Farm doesn't directly mention the Soviet Union. But they tweaked on, he got exiled. Also, in America in the early 20th century, there was a radio show called The Superman Show and The Stetson Kennedy Show. And those two shows are highlighted as twisting public opinion on the Ku Klux Klan. Because I think Ku Klux Klan was legitimate in the early 20th century. And then they were satirised so much by these radio shows to be made fools of that it turned public opinion. So there are examples of how the Albert, the, the, um, the Arab Spring, it was full of humour. People don't report that, but you, when you translate a lot of the placards, 
fact it's all based on humour as opposed to violence. You make some good points, but I would still maintain that humour is much more... If there's a political purpose to humour, if humour has a political effect, it's still much more about rebellion rather than something that can cause revolution. I think there's more to it. Uh, there's more to these changes than simply jokes and humour. Do you think comedy or humour is more political now than it was when Orwell wrote this? No, I think it's always been political. Why do you think so? I don't know enough about it in his time. I only know that in my lifetime, humour's been extremely political. What was the most famous humorous show in the 80s? Spitting Britain? Image. Spitting Image. Um, and now if you watch any, do you watch any of the American late night shows? No, like no. The I Daily don't. Show and Late Night. I'm familiar with The Daily Show, though, like John Oliver. And... John Oliver and um, John Stewart. Mm. He's quit now, but he's been taken over by Trevor Noah. They're all political, all based on political satirization. So that's why those those programs all have huge ratings over the Donald Trump tenure. What do you think of this other part of Orwell's theory of humour, which is that this idea of funny but not vulgar in the title of the essay, the idea that the problem with English humour, as George Orwell sees it in the time he's living in, is that humour is far too safe and far too lowbrow. Um, Orwell argues that in order to be funny, something has to be either considered offensive by a certain group of people or it needs to be intellectually taxing. And he uses the examples of, you know, something is funny when it deals with a vulgar subject like sex or death or uh, infidelity or uh, these things that, you know, as he writes, debunk humanity. It's either funny because of that, or it's funny because of the cleverness of the joke. And Orwell argues that one of the problems with English humour, particularly English uh, literary humour, in the time he's living in, is that jokes, or rather humour, is produced for the middle classes, who don't want to hear about sex and death and childbirth and poverty, <laughs> and are also anti-intellectual, so they don't want anything that's too clever. What, what do you make of that? That may have been true in his time, and, and the authors he lists, the, of the ones I know, yeah, that's true. But it's not true now, is it? When I think about my favourite comedy shows and comedians now, I, they are vulgar and good for it. So what do you think? I mean, you're, I think you're more aware of the authors he, he lists in this essay. Yes, well, we've gone through you know, a lot of cultural change since Orwell wrote this. Um, the alternative comedy movement, well, actually, even before that, the, the satire boom in the 60s, which was supposed to be the end of deference towards the ruling classes, and then yeah. Python, which was both vulgar and intellectual. Yeah. And then we get into alternative comedy. But I do think... Do you in, like alternative comedy? Uh, I mean, it's very of its time, isn't it? Yeah, um, I'm not a fan. Why not? I just don't find it funny. 
You don't find things like the young ones? Don't like the young uh, ones. Do you remember Bottom? Bottom. Didn't yes. like that. Really? The Mighty Boosh. You don't like the Mighty Boosh? I can't stand it. Um, is, is that is too... a, Le- a League of Gentlemen? I, I love the League of Gentlemen. I don't like it. What's, uh, I mean, all of those things, I suppose they can all be linked because there's a certain amount of, I suppose, whimsy. Is it because you don't like whimsy? I think so. Yeah, I don't like the abstract whimsiness of them. I, I just don't find it funny, and it's each to their own, but... I know that you are a big fan of The Office. Would you say you prefer your comedy to be rooted in the real? My, my favourite comedy show is Peep Show. Do you like Peep Show? I've seen some of it, I do like it. That's my favourite. It's they're satirizing society, and they're two men in their thirties, right? <laughs> still twenties. <laughs> and there's two men in their thirties who are just drifting through life, and it just satirizes that. But there's lots of references to the politics of the day, to history, and so on. I find it so funny how they can relate the, the mundane of everyday suburban life to. Hitler's invasion of Russia. We brought up there how you don't really like kind of whimsy, but you do like Python. But I suppose that's a bit like liking Guinness. I suppose everyone who likes beer likes Guinness, and everyone who likes comedy likes Python. A lot of Python's hit and miss, though. That's true, if you watch it from beginning to end. Yeah, but for every great sketch, there's there's one I just don't get. I prefer the movies to the sketch Mm. shows. How about you? Well, I recently sat down, you know, pandemic and everything, not being able to go out much. Um, I recently sat down and watched several series of Monty Python, and I did agree, I, I do agree with you, there's a lot of hit and miss. Some of it's very of its time. I do think it's interesting how they combine so many strands of what I would call the British, maybe more English, tradition of comedy. There's There's vulgar stuff, stuff about sex, there's surprising amount of nudity in Monty Python for 1970s TV. Um, stuff about there's sex jokes, there's uh, jokes about Nietzsche, there's uh, uh, silly songs. Well, they had the, um, the the Communist Manifesto skit where you've got Lenin, Marx, oh, Engels. In, in the game show. In the game show, yeah. <laughs> I, do you remember in The Meaning of Life where they're in this public school and in the classroom? And uh, this woman comes in, takes off her clothes. The teacher takes off. He goes, "Right today, sex education. So, what do we do first? You know, sniff. Put it in, sir. Sniff. You don't just shove it in. What foreplay, boy? No, I won't say what he says next. But... <laughs> Is that just like a flashback to your school days when oh, you watched that? I remember that class. We all had to gather around this um. This whole TV with a VHS and this same video the teacher had been playing for the last 20 years. It was like a 70s video and um, yes, a, a man and a woman, all the thing. And of course, I went to boys' school, you can imagine the... Could, could the... cut the air with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> but there were no live demonstrations as in Monty Python. Well, thank God for that. Yeah, we, we were talking there before about how you don't like whimsy, but, I mean, Orwell... Well, you see, I don't like whimsy. That's <laughs> a steady one. Orwell did like whimsy. He mentions how, aside from this vulgar humour and intellectual humour, there's also what he calls the humour of pure fantasy. 
this humour of what Orwell calls pure fantasy, do you have any time for that, Simon? Any time for, you know, Edward Lear, nonsense uh, comedy, nonsense poetry, that kind of thing? It's not my cup of tea. But it is yours, isn't it? Yes, I love it. Really love it. Have you, have you got any examples that you'd like to share? Well, again, um, say silly limericks. Uh, there was a, an old man of Whitehaven who danced a quadrille with a raven. They said it's absurd to encourage this bird, so they smashed that old man of Whitehaven. Um, I remember when I came around yours for Christmas lunch this year, last year, and you 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 did the story after we ate. Ah so yes, now that's that's hilarious. That, that was, no, that was I vul- like that. That was vulgar. <laughs> that was, we can't repeat it on this, but um, we could maybe do it as a a Christmas special. A Christmas special live from Lewis's house. No, that was that was funny. I'll just say, if anyone wants to look it up, it was uh, Christmas Day in the Workhouse. There are many versions. Uh, wh- whichever version you find which is unrepeatable is the one I... Put in brackets blue <laughs> when you type it into Google. Orwell in humour, you know, you might think he was quite uh, he was quite high-minded when it came to humour, but he liked uh, slapstick very much, Orwell, you know? There's a... So where's the intellectualism in slapstick? Well, I think he would argue... Because he's asking for more intellectualism and English humour. Ah, but he's saying it should either be... He's saying that there's two kinds of vulgar. One kind of vulgar is uh, base instincts, sex, death, all of that. And the other kind of vulgar is hyper-intellectualism. Basically, this argument is all about how humour has been ruined by the middle classes and the idea of middle brown. So he liked slapstick. Um, There's a great story about how his nieces and nephews, when they went to the cinema with him, uh, he used to be roaring with laughter at Charlie Chaplin films. And I think it's just a lovely image, like George Orwell sat in the the stalls watching a Charlie Chaplin film and just enjoying it. I imagine he was a Laurel and Hardy fan as Mm. well. Well, you know, when he was doing his tramping, a family he stayed with nicknamed him Laurel because, oh, really? because he reminded them of Stan Laurel. Something I'd like to bring up about this essay is what do you think he means by genteel? Describing a comedian. And do you think comedians can, are, are genteel today? Could you give me an example of uh, where he says that? Does he not say it directly? Or does he insinuate I think what he means by genteel is humour, comedy that is meant to be very bland, so bland that it will only please the middle classes, the professional middle classes. He mentions how uh, nearly, quoting Orwell, nearly all English humorists today are too genteel, too kind-hearted, and too consciously lowbrow. And that's not lowbrow as in, you know... uh, jokes about bodily functions. It's lowbrow as in not clever. Uh, do, do you think the purpose of humour is at risk when you're not willing to offend? Because, I mean, off- offence is subjective. Yes. And humour is subjective. And it, it means what you... It depends what you mean by willing to offend. Because you were saying earlier, and I would agree with you, that humour should be punching up. Yeah. But one of the arguments that people who defend certain kinds of humour these days make is that if you say humour can't be offensive, 
then he, or, or, or rather, it, if you want your humour to be offensive, it needs to punch in all directions. And that's something I struggle with as someone who enjoys comedy, enjoys humour. But that's very dangerous because what we mustn't forget is just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. So when you start having to punch in all directions with regards to offence, you're, you're opening up Pandora's box there. Speaking of the idea of genteel, he goes on to say that a lot of the humour of his time seems to be aimed at, quote, prosperous stockbrokers whiling away an odd half hour in the lounge of some suburban golf course. They and all their kind are dominated by an anxiety not to stir up mud, either moral, religious, political or intellectual. So again, they don't want anything disgusting or the things that they deem disgusting which are just basically the facts of life, and they don't want to think too hard either. And we might make the argument that any humour that makes you think, makes you question the system you're living under, or makes you question the way things are, is humour that Orwell would approve of. Yeah, a tiny revolution. Yes, or at least a rebellion, I would say. Or in Lewis's essay, edited, abridged version. <laughs> Expurgated. Or humour is a tiny rebellion. <laughs> so let me ask you something. This is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of years. Do you think comedy or humour at the moment is under attack from wokeness? I know it's not an easy question to answer, but you can't give me an answer, a definitive answer. But what are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, I'd like you to define wokeness i think wokeness much like cancel culture really needs to be contextualized before one can comment on it okay so let me give you a this is not my description of woke but it's the official one it's a term that refers to awareness of issues that concern social justice and racial justice now i think the, the general consensus is is that where have, where are we drawing the lines on social justice and to what extent do we pursue the narrative. I would say that if, like you and I, if you believe that humour ought to be punching up, then if something is obviously aimed at mocking people who are not in a position of power, then it's obviously problematic humour. So what about all Scottish people are, are, are misers. All scousers are thieves. So this isn't aiming up, is it? This is this is general segments of society. Uh, Irish people are not intelligent. I think these are New Zealanders appreciate sheep too much. I think that these are all you know outdated and do not deserve airtime. Have you been to Scotland? Although, you know something about, you know, the whole um, Scottish people being misers thing? No one quite knows where that comes from, but uh, one of the thoughts about it is that, um, you know, it's related to Protestantism and to plain living. And we must remember that uh, Scots have played quite a significant role in the British Empire and in administration, often in 
jobs in bursars and, bursars and dealing with finance yeah. so is that joke punching up is it punching down was it punching up when mm. it started it would have come about because people were angry or people were bitter or jealous but so, so probably is punching up but the problem is wouldn't you say that a lot of racist jokes would have come up when people were angry bitter and jealous but that doesn't make the racist jokes uh, acceptable I don't think a lot of racist jokes come from anger, bitterness and jealousy. I think they come from a need for justification. Mm. We've discussed this in other podcasts about how in the British and French empires particularly, racism is a form of justifying their superiority to justify the things they're doing and the imperial power. So I think it goes more down those lines as opposed to any form of jealousy. Ignorance as well. A lot of ignorance. Is any racist joke funny? Is saying um, like a, a joke about a Scotsman being tight racist? No, because... Is saying a joke about a Jewish man being tight racist? Yes. What's the difference? I would say the difference is that Scots have not been systematically discriminated against in the way that Jewish people have. Okay. I think it's systemic. Should that matter? I when think it comes so. to prejudice? I think so, because... Uh, if you've been bullied more than me, is it not equal if we're both bullied tomorrow? No, I don't think it's equal, because like I say, it's a matter of systemic uh, oppression. It's just like those people who say that uh, black people can be racist to white people. No, you can be prejudiced, but racism is about systems of oppression. Okay, I see what you mean. So it's more systematic. Mm. Okay. But if, a, if a, a black person is saying derogatory things to a white person because of the colour of their skin, it's racist. No, I would say it's prejudiced. I think, the, I think the definition of racism is it has to be related to systems of power, doesn't it? And traditionally, the power, most of the power has been on the white side. And you have a go at me about my Foucault fascination. <laughs> I was very Foucauldian. But I thought racism was about is related to ethnicity. I thought it was about I thought it was related to ethnicity and power. So racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism by an individual community or institution against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group. I think I'm closer to what's generally considered to be the definition, but I actually entirely agree with you about how power and power relations is behind this. This, I'd say we're both right. And I'm more right because I'm Scottish, which is better. Racist. <laughs> <laughs> You're half English. <laughs> and I it keeps me up at night. <laughs> so, Simon, we, it's gotten quite heavy. Tell me a joke. Okay. Um, so, policeman's walking down the road, right? And he sees a drunk guy. And the drunk guy is leading along this uh, penguin on a string. <laughs> and the policeman says, here you, what are you doing with that penguin? And the drunk says, oh, poor penguin, I just found him. He was all alone. He didn't have anyone. I just wanted to look after him. And the policeman says, look, you listen to me. You take that penguin to the zoo. And the drunk says, all right, all right, I'll take him to the zoo. 
Next day, a policeman's walking down the same road. He sees the drunk leading the penguin along on the string. He says, here, you, I thought I told you to take that penguin to the zoo. And the drunk says, and I did, and he liked it, and we're going to the movies now. <laughs> so I have two favourite jokes, one clean, one unclean. That's my favourite clean joke. And the unclean? Uh, we'd be here for hours. Oh, okay. Shall I tell you my favourite clean? Go ahead. There was a peanut walking down a dangerous road in a dangerous neighbourhood. It was assaulted. <laughs> what do you call a deer with no eye? No idea. What do you call a deer with no eye and no leg? Still no idea. <laughs> <laughs> what do you call a deer with no eye, no leg and no penis? Still no fucking idea. <laughs> oh, we've got to keep that one in. Maybe I, can, maybe I can bleep that. So, what do you call a fish? With no eye. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, actually, there is one thing I wanted to bring up. Um, the idea that humour either has to be uh, somehow vulgar or offensive or somehow intellectual. Have you ever heard of the comedian Tim Vine? Yes. Do you like him? Yes and no. Because he, he plays with words, doesn't he? Well, he's very quick all and he does, it's just pun after all pun. All he does after is pun. puns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's quite good, but listen to it for more than a minute, I get a bit bored. Well, I have to say, I love Tim Vine, and he's one of the few comedians who I could, who, who really make me laugh out loud. Mm. And I could, you would think half an hour of puns would be exhausting and you wouldn't be laughing very long. I love it. it. It just keeps me roaring in the aisles, Tim Vine. The interesting thing about Tim Vine that I found out recently is he's, a, he's quite a committed Christian. Um, he's an Anglican. So is that why he keeps it clean? That is why he, one of the reasons he keeps it clean, because uh, it's part of his ideology. He's not very kind of evangelical. Uh, it's just he so happens to be a Christian. So, who got into the public eye first, him or his brother? I think it was his brother. And do you reckon he got his break because of his brother? Well, I wouldn't like to say, but uh, these things often run in families, don't they? Yeah. Know, do you know who Victoria Cohen is? Yes. She's married to David Mitchell. And she's a communist in The, in the Guardian. The paper which her father was editor of. David Mitchell is also a communist in the Guardian. So. Convenient. Yeah, convenient. But they both of them are very genuinely talented and funny, so fair enough. Just to finish off, Simon, um, Orwell... You're going to finish me yeah. off? <laughs> what do they do? <laughs> <laughs> and how are you going to do it? <laughs> Playing with expectations, that's comedy. Um, <laughs> so, mentioning... Um, literary humour. Um, then literary as in trash, or then literary. So what's the funniest, probably answered this already, but what, what's the funniest book you've read? The Bible. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> so you? There's a lot of sex in it, so there's a lot of begatting. <laughs> I would say um, Three Men in a Boat, which... Um, have you read that? I did a long time ago. It, I love it. Um, it's got some great, really funny passages. You wouldn't imagine that something written in the 1880s could make you laugh out loud, but it does. Um, 
I recommend especially there's a passage describing a guy who buys a particularly ripe cheese, which is probably the funniest bit in the book. Orwell doesn't mention Jerome Jerome, does he? Interestingly he, not. He says the humour was at its best until the 1860s. Yeah. This book's written 20 years after, so that's interesting. Well, everyone, thank you for listening. That was funny but not vulgar. Uh, I'm afraid I think we were vulgar but not funny. But Toilet. So, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, we are online, obviously, because you're picking this up online. Uh, so <laughs> We are humans. <laughs> we are two men speaking now. Um, we make a podcast, which is what you're listening to. Um, so uh, please write to us, orwellpod at gmail.com. Uh, we're on uh, Twitter, Instagram. Fucking obvious.com. <laughs> this is definitely getting an explicit rating. Um, and... and if you're under 18 listening to this, don't tell your parents. No, no, don't. This podcast can be what, when I was your age, was my penthouse. You had a penthouse when you were oh, you public school boys. <laughs> There's a lot of penthouses in public school boy <laughs> dormitories, I can assure you as well. And Mayfair. Well, everyone, as we always like to say, Orwell, that ends well.